Happy New Year, Los Angeles. Today isn't just the start of 2020, a new year. It's a new decade. And LA is charging into the 2020s with a record number of jobs, a deep commitment to solving our most pressing challenges, and momentum to become the most sustainable big city in the world. We have so much to look forward to in the coming decade. From the opening of the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art and the Olympic and Paralympic Games, a people mover at LAX, and so much more. But today, on this first day of the new year, let's reflect on the role that each one of us plays in making LA so special. And let's renew our commitment to each other and to our city of angels. And let me say to all Angelinos, thank you for your compassion, creativity, and spirit. Here's to a great new year and a great decade. This is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be doing a bit of a rundown of the last year and we're going to be talking a, a quick update first on uh, the DA race here for LA County, um, a bomb threat that was made at a homeless encampment in Venice, um, a story that came out that is about the pollution of the air down in the port of Los Angeles, specifically related to the big boats and all of the goods that come through the port on those boats, uh, ships rather. After after we talk about the air pollution down at the port, we're going to be going over two stories that we feel are the most important things to be tracking of what happened in 2019 and uh, seeing how they're going to move forward into 2020. Uh, so Bushido and I each picked a story that we felt needed to be talked about more in depth and uh, something to look forward to in the coming year. And as a quick little side note, people have been talking about the fact that, you know, this is uh, supposed to have been the end of the decade and the start of a new decade, but it's not, uh, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> I will die on this hill. It is a stupid, petty and pedantic hill, but the decade is not over until next year. So put yeah. those like end of, of decade lists away for another year and then we can cover it in 2021. So like there is no year zero, right? So like the first decade was not from zero to nine. It was from one to 10. Learn to count, yep. folks. If there's no zero well, marker, it starts at one. I really Anyways, just threw that in there, so I got you to shout really quickly at the start of uh, start of the podcast. So, uh, how's everything going over there, Bushido? Well, it's 2020, and uh, things are already bad. Like, just to kind of go yeah. off on some international news, because you and I were going to record oh, yesterday. Yeah. We did not get the chance to, so we pushed it back to today, and then everything broke. Uh, yeah, so like yesterday would have been like a really nice, Fuck easy Trump. day to rec record. Uh, and instead the U S government assassinated the number two military, the number two person in Iran, one of their top military leaders who was a general in the, uh, Republican guard Al Quds force, uh, and hit him with a drone strike at the Baghdad airport because we're still bombing a sovereign nation, uh, without telling them that yeah. we're going to do that. So we literally shut down Baghdad airport. Uh, as of today, the U.S. State Department is advising all Americans to leave Iraq unless they absolutely positively have to be there. After the protest at the embassy a couple of days ago, the U.S. announced that it was getting ready to deploy 4,000 troops, like an advanced Marine battalion, to Iraq to like defend our interests and our infrastructure. 750 of those boots are already on the ground. 
the rest of them are getting ready to make their way there. And it's just kind of uh, a shit show and a huge mess. And we just went through this in 2003 with starting illegal wars in the Middle East and that not working out real well. Um, you know, this is all just an outgrowth of George W. Bush's illegal invasion of Iraq and our continuing occupation of that country. And it's like, in some ways, I think it's actually worse than 2003. Because at least then, we had some buildup. You know, there was a debate. There yeah. was like a public forum. There was the there NY was Times lying about all of the reasons yeah, why we should go to pretext, war in Iraq. Yeah. And yeah, this time it was literally just ordering a drone strike and now letting the chips fall where they may, which... If you've been paying attention to this region, you know, like Saudi Aramco had their largest oil facility hit by drones and shut down. I believe it's still like building up to capacity. Um, they're mm -hmm. basically getting that fixed by just issuing no bid contracts and saying, just get it fixed as quickly as possible. But that sort of stuff can happen again now. And the Iranian military has gotten really good at asymmetrical warfare. And they've you know, been involved in Yemen and in Syria as much as we have and as much as Russia has and as much as, like, the Iraqi army has. And to, to kind of, like, pick this fight now is foolhardy and kind of ridiculous. Like, the stock market's already doing what you expect it to do. The, the Dow has chopped a couple hundred points off of it. Oil has spiked. Gold has spiked. Uh, the U.S. dollar is probably going to get weaker, which... Uh, is something that Trump actually wants to see for his trade policy machinations. But uh, all things considered, this is just going to kill a whole lot of people who don't need to die over something we could have avoided. Like, Trump ended the Iran nuclear deal for no reason. Absolutely no um, reason yes. at all except his own, yes. like, pity vindictiveness. And now is launching a region-wide war where this is going to spiral in a way. Like, I don't think it's going to be, you know, ICBMs flying across the continent and the end of life as we know it. But for people who live in the Middle East who are already constantly under threat of, like, U.S. armaments and U.S. aggression, this is not going to make their lives easier or better. It's going to make their lives a heck of a lot worse. So in your own community... Make sure that you're out there organizing against the war state, against the military-industrial complex. Uh, if you keep in, if you keep tuned to Ground Game, we're going to be sharing as many actions as we can find. Uh, we're yeah. continually working with groups like About Face, Veterans Against the War. We want to build a better, more peaceful world. You know, no one's asking like, "Hey, how are we going to pay for this ridiculously stupid, absolutely asinine war?" Uh, at the same time, they're telling us, "Well, we can't afford Medicare for all. That's just a pipe dream." So. Get ready for uh, yeah. a 2020 that's really going to be one for the record books. Uh, with the election coming, it was already going to be a shit show. And now we've got, like, the added uh, spiciness of a regional conflict that didn't need to happen. How's your 2020 yeah. starting? Well, before I get into that, uh, I mean, that, that really has been dominating my thoughts for the last day or so. But the, uh, the other thing that really just comes up in my mind as soon as we start doing this kind of shit with drones is that we are in this kind of a position because Congress has no spine and they allowed Obama to get away with just, you know, unilateral decisions on drone strikes over and over and over again. And nobody, you know, blinked uh, or, or raised a finger to try to stop him. And now that Trump is in that position, they've left all of these rules and presumed authorities in place. And now people are trying to get up in a, in a tizzy about it. And it's just like, guys, you unleashed Pandora's box and then got, you know, this guy in the White House. I, I do have to say it's like in light of the uh, 
authorization of the use of military force, the AUMF oh, that we passed, that. you know, right before the Iraq war, it basically yeah. gives the president the power to do whatever he wants. So when he orders the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, there's no one to stop him. Like Obama right. had a kill list, like you just mentioned. We yeah. have these weapons of war that can reach anyone anywhere on the planet. And we have fewer controls on them. And I think there's a good argument to be made that when we talk about arms reduction and arms control, we tend to think of that in terms of like nuclear, biological, and chemical ICBMs, weapons, like yeah. society destroying, civilization destroying weapons that one person shouldn't have the power to unleash. And that's a good point. Like a nuclear war and civilization yeah, as we know it. It does. But these drone strikes are even more destabilizing and devastating on a more micro scale. And it's something yeah. that's more easily hidden from the American public. Like, we know that we killed 1,500 civilians under Obama to kill, like, 40 people that were actual terrorists. You know, we, yeah, we're it, killing hundreds of people per actual bad guy we're trying to kill as far as the, the military-industrial complex is concerned. And even then, you know... The difference between one person's terrorist and one person's freedom fighter is really which side of an invisible line you happen to be born on. Yeah, and then who gets to write the story at the end? Um, yeah, it, it's just it's just bleak. I was really hoping that like 2020 was going to be, especially in the light of like the Bernie campaign, pulling in like 35, almost 35 million dollars in donations in the fourth quarter, and you know beating the shit out of uh, Buttigieg and Warren on that one. Uh, like I was getting excited about like, man, we're going to start seeing some actual changes and it's like going to be a hopeful 2020. And then of course, you know, we get to instead start it with this of like, oh my God, we might be having a, you know, a potential regional conflict that could spiral into, uh, frankly, a world war because we're looking at, you know, the, the U S is the international hege hegemonic imperial power. That is, we, we, we are the only ones left in that role. Russia wishes they could be, China kind of wants to be, but they're more about the business side of it. But the, the, the rub here is that we have become complacent in how we deal with things and we still think that the same, like the same military stuff that we used to use is going to somehow be effective at managing threats in this century. And we've taught everyone what we want to do and we still think that like, using power in this way is going to be effective. And the simple reality is, is, is it's not. We went into Afghanistan with no idea what the fuck we were doing. We had all of those papers that came out just recently in the, the, Af the Afghanistan papers that came out that detailed how we were bullshitting our way through the entire thing the entire time and making up these, it, it's this, we didn't know what we were doing when we went into Vietnam and we lied about it the whole time. We didn't know what we were doing when we went into Afghanistan. We lied about it the whole time. We clearly don't know what the fuck we're doing in Iraq because we've been there just as long and we, it's, you know, they've been lying about that, I'm sure, as well. And now we're getting ready to start doing it again in Iran. And it's like, guys, this shit does not work. We need to make peace, not war. Killing people like this is not, like... If you want to make sure that terrorism thrives in the coming century, keep doing this shit because those drone strikes are creating more terrorists every single time. Because like you said, when you were killing like 40 to one, like if we, if you take 40 civilians out for every single target that you're trying to, you know, every, every target of value that you're trying to hit with a drone strike, that means you've got 40 people whose loved ones are going to be pushed that much closer to deciding to say, fuck all of this. 
and embrace, you know, becoming a terrorist as a way to try to strike back because we are, we are literally the bad guys. We are well, the fucking stormtroopers. And there are also 1,400 people out there whose families are angry yeah. with us because we murdered them when they were innocent and then tried to play games yeah, yes. like, oh, if you're a male over the age of 12 and we happen to hit oh, you with a drone strike, enemy combatant bullshit. Yeah, we're going to call you a de facto terrorist because like, we only care, kill terrorists with our drones. Ipso facto, if we killed you with a drone and you're a 12-year-old you boy, yeah. well, you're now a terrorist. Whether, you know, and, and Doesn't matter it gets, if you even, like, it gets even darker when you look at the fact that like you know we're tracking sim cards to do this we don't even know who's actually got the sim card Ugh. you know we're just assuming like through our surveillance state that we know who the who the people are that we want to be targeting that we're able to track them effectively and then launching <laughs> hellfire missiles at them and yeah. just obliterating homes destroying communities it's it's absolutely maddening and it's like every single time a drone goes up in the air that's a couple tens of thousands of dollars that we're not able to spend on a school or a hospital or a teacher it's an insane amount of money and like Ike Eisenhower you know as much as he is problematic because he you know he he wasn't the anti-militarist that he wanted to portray himself at as at the end Correct. of his career at the same time he did give a good warning about which way we're trending and before that Smedley Butler was out there ringing the bell about the the war state and the way that we were trending as an imperial power and you know lo and behold we didn't listen because there's a lot of money to be made being an yeah, imperial war state so Let's, uh, let's so yeah, that's how we're getting into 2020. So yeah, let's um, uh, yeah. Let, <laughs> this is going to be a, a very happy podcast. <laughs> yeah, speaking of getting into 2020, let's uh, jump right into the uh, district attorney's race here in LA County because yeah. uh, we wanted to update you. This is a, about a week old for the update, but uh, since we did take some time off to like celebrate the end of a hell year and the start of a new hell year, what's going on between <laughs> Rachel Rossi and Mr. Gascon? Yeah, so uh, it, it has been determined that Rachel Rossi will, in fact, be appearing on the ballot in March as, quote, public defender federal uh, in her campaign to become the next Los Angeles County District Attorney. Uh, following the ruling, Rossi released a statement about how it all went down, and she declared how she is very proud to be the first former public defender to run for L.A. County District Attorney. So this was all about just, like, what is the name like, what's the descriptor that you're allowed to have after your name on the ballot? Because, uh, the, you know, there's, there's your name, there's typically party affiliation, and then there's a descriptor saying what your job was. And the whole rub was that, you know, you need to have a job title or a, a, a descriptor that accurately reflects the job that you held in, that you currently hold or that you held the, in the year before, you know, the run for office. And uh, Gascon's campaign was apparently trying to claim uh, that her title was not accurate, um, which it very clearly was. I'm, I'm, I'm still just completely uh, baffled as to what the grounds that were, were supposed to have been for why that would have been an inaccurate description. But uh, the judge said I've that it is. And so that's what she's got. I think it's a, you know, I think for them it was a low risk, high reward situation for Gascon's campaign. Gotcha. Because if he wins, then he kicks her off the ballot and he uh, effectively muzzles his biggest competition from the left. If he loses, yes. it, costs, it costs him nothing. Like he paid a couple thousand dollars in attorney's fees, moves on. There's no sanction against his campaign. It doesn't cost him anything. So, you know, just throw spaghetti against the wall. <laughs> yeah, just throw spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks. And unfortunately, in races like these, not a lot of people are going to pay attention to these shenanigans but we hope that you do because and we should we be getting a district attorney <laughs> that's rooted in a progressive yes. 
reform oh, movement towards the criminal legal system. And we need somebody who's seen how dysfunctional it is. And not just like being a progressive district attorney. Like, Gascon was still like a progressive cop when it comes down to it. Like, he instituted a lot yeah. of good reforms in San Francisco. At the same time, we have the chance to elect a district attorney in Rachel Rossi who really believes what we believe as far as prison abolition goes, as far yes. as doing away with cash bail and getting an actual fair system in there. You know, we have technically eliminated cash bail in the state of California. That system hasn't been rolled out yet. And but, what they've been sort of yeah. playing with is sort of scary algorithmic um, yeah, uh, ways models. of approaching who ends risk up in a cage and who doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, New York just <sighs> did, just got away, just did away with cash bail. I was arguing with some very, you know, stupid people on Twitter about how dangerous that's going to be. And it always <laughs> comes down to like, oh my gosh, they're releasing this guy who did this thing. And it's like, well, they'd still release him if he was rich enough to pay the bail. Why is that okay? Yeah. You know, and then they're like, well, he, he won't show up then. And people show up for their court appearances. Otherwise, we send the police out to, like, get them. But people tend to show up for their court appearances because they yeah. would like this over as much as the state does. You know, it, yeah, it's, despite, like, the shows like The Mandalorian where they're like, hey, look, this guy skipped out on his bail. Like, we're going to go hunt him down. That's, that, that's not like what most well, I don't, people I don't do. Think the, I don't, don't think the Mandalorian is, is hunting people who skipped bail. I think they're like... Yeah, it is. Most it, of the people that, he's, that, he's, that like, he was taking bounties on were, were people who skipped bail. There's, there's mean, a scene in there that does that. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a lot of folks that he just seems to be hunting down fictional. to kill also. Like, uh, oh, oh, you know, fair. <laughs> you know, I've only watched like half of the season. If, so, if it yeah, wasn't I'm, for I'm his Mandalorian it. heart of gold, he would have killed Baby Yoda and collected the bounty. But now we have Baby fair. Yoda... And that makes everything okay. <laughs> so again, if you want to protect Baby Yoda, vote for Rachel Rossi for district attorney. Yeah, of the county of Los there we Angeles. go. That's a great way to bring that one back. <laughs> but so let's uh, uh, let's talk about something that went down uh, last night in Venice. That is a continuation yeah. of the violence we're seeing against our unhoused neighbors, uh, which is only getting worse as the rhetoric gets worse itself. So there was a uh, there was there was an issue, and I'm just going to go ahead and read straight from uh, Mike Bonin, uh, Council Member Mike Bonin's tweets uh, on this issue because uh, he's a pretty good source for this one. Uh, so last night, LAPD responded to a report of suspicious devices that looked like bombs at the site of the future bridge housing in Venice. Streets were closed, and nearby homes were evacuated for several hours while LAPD bomb squad analyzed the devices. There were three devices. While they were apparently designed to look like explosives, bomb squad determined that. None of them contained the necessary fuel to cause an explosion. LAPD removed them, conducted safety sweeps of the area, reopened the streets, and let people back into their homes. Um, so this, like, we've seen this kind of stuff happening where people had, you know, they had thrown uh, firecrackers or, um, you know, little mortar, other, other firework-type devices uh, explosives at homeless encampments um, in Silver Lake Echo Park. We talked about that one incident in particular that uh, blew a hole in a tent um, and rattled uh, the man and his dog who were in the tent at the time. Um, and we've seen the incident that happened up in uh, up in Eagle Rock where a fire was set to sweep out uh, or to you know push out an encampment. It was targeting that homeless encampment, we, we, we haven't seen any, uh, any further action on that one in the, in the legal system and for uh, consequences for those two housed rich people who did this. 
Um, but you know, this is a continued thing. There were, I know, right? And then there, there were also shots that had been fired at mobile homes uh, up in the valley that people were living in. Um, bullets that were found on the dashboard. Uh, like there's the threats of violence against our unhoused neighbors uh, are are continuing to escalate, and it's just sickening to see the kind of discourse that's happening on Twitter surrounding these things. Um, especially if you look at uh, you know the interactions that some of these hateful people have had with groups like uh, Koreatown for All, uh, sorry K Town for All, um, and with us uh, with Ground Game Twitter and and everything else that's out there, all like and Street Watch specifically from DSA and and all the other partner organizations that are involved in Sela, we see people making shitty shitty comments about the kinds of work that people are doing that are trying to make a difference. And then these reactionary ideas of effectively trying to like hunt down unhoused people and make it as toxic and painful and difficult for them as possible to live in an area in order to push them to be like, oh, go live in, you know, live a street down in front of my other neighbors. Like, and then they'll do the same thing. And then eventually all of our streets are going to be covered in lime and you cannot sit or, you know, have your skin contact the street without it melting your flesh. Uh, It's it's just disgusting. Well, and then this morning, LAPD showed how much compassion they have for people living on the streets in Venice by conducting a very uh, aggressive sweep on Hampton Avenue, uh, where people were told, like, you can only take what you can carry with two hands, which, A, effing illegal. Yeah, they take off both ends of the street. Yes, it is. uh, You get 60 gallons that you can that you can keep, and that includes, like, your tent, that includes your bike, that includes your no, vital documents. No, that doesn't document. include, you get, uh, that's in addition to, you get to, your, your yeah, tent yeah, yeah. is excluded from that, you get to take it Sorry. with you. Yeah, that's what I meant, is, like, your your yeah. tent at, plus the 60 gallons, plus, like, your yes. bike, plus your vital documents, yep. plus your medications. Yep. Yeah, LAPD was just, like, anything you can grab with two hands, that's all you get to keep. So, it's like, absurd. it seems, I think, in, in the minds of a lot of LAPD, like, commanders and precincts the way to solve this problem is to just not have there be homeless people like if there aren't people living on the street there's no one to target and that's not how you solve this because those people don't have anywhere to go they're just going to shuffle around to another block and then another aggressive sweep is going to happen and not only is it like incredibly cruel and inhumane and causes a lot of stress it's just completely ineffective like just pushing people from one block to another block (laughs) does literally nothing it's not helping the problem and until we actually build affordable housing and subsidized housing and permanent supportive housing for people, we're not getting anywhere. And I just don't understand what LAPD is accomplishing with this other than just banking some billable hours for their officers because pushing out the homeless pays pretty well, apparently. Yeah, and so this is this is why um, the Boise decision was um, almost my my uh, spoiler alert. That's not the one I decided to talk about, um, and but it, it almost was the one I decided to talk about for our year in review uh, stories because that decision is huge and it really reflects the fact that in 2019, the LA City Attorney and the LA County Board of Supervisors all took these extraordinarily reactionary steps to try and make being unhoused as illegal as possible in order to be able to further criminalize people and push them around by just locking them up and thinking that somehow that was going to be the key to solving our unhoused, like our, our homelessness crisis. And it's just like, no guys, we, we know what works. It's building housing and providing services and criminalization doesn't work, but you tried that all throughout 2019 
And I was really hoping that maybe we might be getting to see some kind of compassionate response in 2020 because they've tried the, you know, tried the stick. Now, maybe let's see if the carrot actually works and, you know, actually solving it with compassion and empathy. But instead, we get to start the year off with LAPD roping off both ends of the street and saying, fuck you, get out of here. So yeah, and, um, and let's not forget that Nuri Martinez, God. the new president of city council, ah. you know, one of the first things that she did in the environmental, in the environment, climate change and uh, sustainability committee. I think, I think that's it. I, I, I may be messing up the rather long ECJ, name, but one yeah, of the first yeah, things yeah. she did was call for a review of care and care plus teams to be like, Oh, is this really effective? Yep. Like 90 days yep. after they'd been implemented, you know, we are the fifth largest economy. <laughs> yeah. We are the fifth largest economy in the world. Like we have, have an insane amount of wealth here in LA and that wealth is toxic and not just in the sense that rich people who live in homes are able to push out people who are suffering on the street but the air pollution coming out of the literal engine of our economic yeah. boom the port yep. of Los Angeles is killing us so let's talk yes, about this is. LA Times article about the amount of air pollution that's coming out of the port of LA and the fact that like we've been grappling with that for 15 years and no yeah. one has been able to decrease those emissions. If anything, they go up year after year. So fun fact, um, when I was taking a, uh, a technical writing class back in, um, well, that must have been 2006 at USC, we actually had folks. a project. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the project that um, you know, we, we, we got from my group was talking about um, basically transportation of goods from the Port of Los Angeles in an effort to improve the air quality in the area. And one of the big things that I remember hearing about from uh, someone that I, I, I spoke to about the issue before we wrote our group paper uh, was about the idea of using shore power on these ships because it was something that had been pushed for at the time. And actually in 2007, there was a, uh, a new set of regulations that were put in place by the California Air Resource Board. Uh, it was called their at-birth regulation, which required vessel operators to plug in at least half of a fleet's ships and lower overall emissions by 50%. Um, so back in 2017, those requirements jumped up to be 70%. And then they're supposed to jump to 80% this year in 2020. But according to figures that were provided to the LA Times by the Air Resources Board, these rules do not apply to more than half of the 8,000 ocean vessels that visit California each year. So this was a, a, a step that, uh, you know, the shore power thing really is extraordinarily efficient um, at cutting emissions because when these big cargo ships and roll-on, roll-off ships, um, all, all of the the big vessels, the cruise ships, everything else that comes in, anything that's huge and runs on like bunker fuel or diesel or whatever uh, to turn their massive turbines, uh, those ships have to keep their boilers running, have to keep the engines running in order to keep themselves powered up the entire time that they're docked at a berth. So Basically, the uh, idea with shore power is it's, uh, think of it as a giant extension cord. Apparently, each of the plugs is like 30 pounds. So I'm talking like really, really big extension cords. Uh, and then you, you basically just plug it into a, a socket on the, uh, on the dock that's hooked up to the, the power grid. And so then these ships are able to run off of our, the Los Angeles power grid instead of their own generators. Uh, and it means that they can actually turn off those engines. They can stop emitting... Uh, these huge plumes of sulfur dioxide and other particulate emissions that have caused, you know, that's where a huge chunk of that brown cloud that we see in the LA basin 
uh, comes from, is from these ships. In fact, the projected top 10 smog sources in Southern California in terms of tons per day of nitrogen oxides in 2023, ships and commercial boats ranks at the top of the list with 49 tons per day of nitrogen oxides predicted in 2023. Heavy-duty diesel trucks comes in next at 43 alongside off-road equipments. They're tied at the in the number two position. Aircraft is all the way down at 17. So all of those emissions that you get um, from the uh, from LAX and from all the other airplanes flying around, are you know not not even half of what you get from the diesel trucks and the off road equipment, and they're about a third of what you get from the ships and commercial boats. So this is a huge source of pollution and contamination in our environment, and it really needs to have some stuff being done. Like needs meaningful steps taken to address it. Um, yeah. So the, the piece that, that really sparked uh, this discussion today about this came from Tony Barboza at the LA Times. He published the piece this morning, January 3rd, saying, quote, the Air Resources Board proposes to extend such restrictions to additional ports, ship calls, and vessel types, including tankers and roll-on, roll-off ships which carry cars, trucks, and other vehicles. The rules would increase the number of ships visits subject to the rules from about 43% today to about 71% by 2029, Air Board figures show. So what it really comes down to is that those rules that were put in place in 2007 uh, fell short. They didn't capture nearly as much of what they were supposed to. And uh, just to give you another little, you know, lovely tidbit here, uh, this is a a, a great figure that uh, Tony included in his piece saying, Quote, in one 24-hour period in port, a single cruise ship can burn enough fuel oil to equal the pollution of 10,000 cars. So, yep. No, like Carnival fun. Cruise is one of the biggest polluters on the planet, yes. and we don't effing talk about that. They run super heavy diesel ships. They're constantly having oil leaks. They're constantly dumping stuff into the ocean. Also, like, people can take an exotic colonizing visit to another country, and it's really... Yeah. It's really messed up. Like, I've stayed in Cozumel, and I didn't go there on a cruise. Like, my family went there for vacation, and we just kind of, like, stayed in one of the resorts. And, like, for the weekend when the cruise ships visit, that's the economy of the island. And it's really fucking weird. And I think one of the most disgusting things I ever saw was when we did, like, a day trip uh, over to Chichen Itza, uh, which is some amazing, like, Mayan ruins in this just absolutely massive city that's being slowly uncovered um, as archaeological technology gets better. But we we stopped at a little, like, waypoint where uh, Mayan folks were selling uh, different wares and, like, handmade things that they made. And I saw white tourists who clearly, you know, were driving like an F-250 truck at home arguing with people over a couple dollars for like a bracelet or a crucifix. And I think it's one of the most disgusting things I'd ever seen that like these white people had flown to Miami, taken this cruise all to like save some money and then came Mm -hmm. to like some of the most, you know, disenfranchised indigenous people on the planet and been like, I'm still going to get a deal. That's why I came to Mexico. Not to, like, appreciate your culture or what your civilization built, but because I can save money by buying this bobble, (laughs) and you're so desperate you'll cut me that deal. Fuck those people. Yeah, so then in 2017, uh, amid fears that we were losing ground in this fight against air pollution, because we were, the Clean Air Air Action Plan, um, which governs what goes on in these ports, or at least is supposed to, uh, was updated to require zero emissions cargo handling equipment by 2030 and zero emission trucks by 2035. 
But here's the rub. Uh, these things are not actually meaningfully enforced, and LA, LA has done an absolutely shit job at this in recent years. So I'm just going to read two paragraphs here from uh, the end of Tony's article uh, because it's shocking. So, quote, in 2015, the Los Angeles Times revealed that the port had privately rolled back pollution-cutting measures at the China Shipping Terminal. The company is called China Shipping. Giving the company permission to violate shore power requirements starting in 2009. In 2016, the port released an audit showing it also failed to meet pollution reduction requirements at the tra the Pack. Uh, terminal, including mandates that ships plug into shore-based electricity. Last month, the Air Resources Board announced Shanghai-based shipping giant Costco Container Lines has paid $965,000 in penalties after a state audit of its fleet visits to the Port of Los Angeles, Long Beach, and Oakland discovered 2,600 violations of the shore power rules from 2014 to 2017. So, yeah... We are not doing a good job at this, and it's great to see rules being updated and being made more strict, but unless the port actually does something about it, the people who live in Wilmington and all of those other areas and down by San Pedro and the rest of the southern, port, uh, southern portion of the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles and go down towards San Diego where all of these ships are coming through, like... We need to actually enforce the damn rules and we need to make sure that these gigantic shipping monoliths, the, the, these international shipping conglomerates are actually being held to account and doing the damn thing. Penalties do not make up for all of those massive amounts of particulate emissions and sulfur dioxide emissions that are poisoning our populations and they're poisoning most the, 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 the impacts are, again, disproportionate. The people who yep. are living in these communities are the, some of the most disenfranchised and economically disadvantaged folks in all of L.A. And we, there's a reason why the Sunrise Movement and other groups have been calling these areas sacrifice zones. Because we, as a pop, yeah, we've just decided that they're, they're going to be sacrificed. The, the 710 corridor is a sacrifice yeah, zone absolutely. that subsidizes your Amazon and Walmart purchases. Like, all of the cheap crap yes. that is coming from China has to drive from the Port of Los Angeles through the 710 corridor before hitting yep. the other major interstates to go out to the distribution centers. And so every yep. single time Walmart's getting a shipment from China, they're taking away a little bit of life from some child's lungs who just happens to live super close to the 710. And they don't really care. Like when Walmart talks about like going green, they've talked about like the amount of waste that they're cutting, but they don't talk yeah. about the fact that the biggest, like most polluting part of their supply chain is just shipping things across the Pacific Ocean because they absolutely don't want to pay American workers to do that stuff. And it's really, really disturbing, yeah. especially when you look at what happens to people who drive those trucks because they often oh, are God, independent yeah. owner operators. They have to own their own truck. They don't they're have the money to upgrade. Servants. Yeah, they don't have the money to upgrade to the best trucks, but they're also the ones being slapped with the fines and being put yeah. under the thumb of the regulations because the shipping companies and the distribution companies don't want to hire them as employees and onboard that risk. Like, the gig yeah. economy is far more deep and insidious than we really give it credit for. It's more than just Lyft and Uber. Being an independent contractor really puts you in the gig economy and strips away a lot of protections that you would have if you were born in any other developed nation. And it's, it's really yeah. just absolutely ridiculous. But... It seems like we're also just missing the target on enforcing this stuff, like on a very basic yeah. level at the port. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's bleak. It's it's super bleak. And on top of all this, you know, we even even with this toxic cloud of pollution uh, that hangs over the 710 and is impacting areas like East LA and Boyle Heights and all of that, we're still seeing the prices of homes just jacking up year after year after year across the city. And that uh, leads us into our next set of topics. Drum roll, please. Yeah, so uh, for me, you know, there was a lot of stuff that obviously happened in 2019. Um, you know, we don't go short on this podcast because of all the stuff that keeps <laughs> happening. And yeah. my Buddha, I would be so happy if like less stuff happened. It would just be so much easier on my editing wrist. Like I would have so much less to actually have to cut. <laughs> but for me, the story that really like set the tone for 2019 and I think is going to set the, the tone for 2020 is the Homes Guarantee that came out from People's Action Network. And yeah. this was a really, really radical platform that was put out by basically talking to people in affected communities. You know, lived experience is expertise. So the people who headed up the Homes Guarantee effort, people like Tara Raghavar, uh, people like Bill Prislecki from Power, understood that if we want to fix housing in this country, we have to talk to people who are getting the short end of the stick. So they talked to public housing tenants, they talked to people who were being screwed by their landlords, they talked to people who were unhoused about what they would need to have a fair housing market. And then they combined that with the economics of the situation, the actual like policies that we could pass now that would allow us to address this and came up with the Homes Guarantee platform. If you want to read it for yourself, I'm obviously going to put the link in the description. Yay. Have a look at it. I do want to say before I like go into this, this was one of the major reasons why we have uh, decided, we at Ground Game have decided to endorse Bernie Sanders for president is that he's, he not only has said he you know, we'll take the Homes Guarantee pledge, which he he pledged to do while we were in Venice um, having a meeting with him before the rally. But him and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez also put out a Green New Deal for public housing that dovetails very nicely with this and is actually pretty much just a plank of the Homes Guarantee platform. But so I'm going to break this down. It is going to be a little bit of a, a long read, but I'm going to kind of try and keep it a little <laughs> bit short, not get too data heavy on you um, because the numbers can can kind of be overwhelming. Uh, but there are five main planks to the Homes Guarantee platform. One, build 12 million social housing units and eradicate homelessness. Two, reinvest yep. in existing public housing. Three, protect renters and bank tenants. And if you're wondering what a bank tenant is, that's someone with a mortgage. Because when Correct. you've got a mortgage and you don't own more than 30% of your house, that house isn't really yours. You're really yep. just a tenant of the bank. You're not a homeowner. Four, pay reparations for centuries of racist housing policies. And five, end land and real estate speculation and decommodify housing. Like, this would be a seismic shift in the way that we deal with housing. And I've said it many times before on this podcast and like in my personal life, because I just think it's one of the most genius things I've ever heard is that if we want to fix housing in this country, we need to start looking at housing as the chance to shelter humans, not as a chance for a landlord to earn a paycheck. And that's the problem we have now. That's my big gripe with like Yimbies and people who seem sort of liberal progressive is they still have this faith in the market. We don't need to have that. 
We shouldn't be looking at housing as something where somebody has to be making money or your investment in a home is an appreciating asset. You know, we shouldn't have wealth transfer vehicles just for the wealthiest 5 to 10% of our society. We should have housing that is stable, that is up to date, that is sustainable for everyone. If, if not for like the moral and ethical reasons of that's just a good thing to do, then for the economic and financial reasons of it costing about three times as much money to have someone living on the street without any kind of support than it is to put them into a unit of their own where they have the services that they need and the stability that they need to get through whatever it is that they're fighting. So let's kind of go through these planks one by one. And with the first one, with building 12 million social housing units to eradicate ho homelessness, social housing is essentially public housing. Currently yes. in the U.S., we have a little bit more than 1 million public housing units spread across uh, about 40-ish states. There's a big hole in sort of the Rocky Mountain region where we just never really built public housing. It mainly tends to be thought of in places like Chicago, where the idea of public housing first started, and then mm -hmm. in New York, where they still have massive public housing infrastructure. And then in L.A., we also have several tens of thousands of public housing units, many of them an outgrowth of the defense industry, because... That's, you know, basically was the driver of the economy in Southern California for the entire period after World War II is still a, a large driver of the economy. But after World War II, it was like, okay, we brought in all these workers for the defense industry. Where are we actually going to house them? And a lot of yep. places, like I believe it's Nickerson Gardens, was originally housing for U.S. Uh, soldiers and then got turned into public housing when we no longer needed to put tens of thousands of soldiers up in barracks. But so what, what this plan essentially asks to do is, is to not just build more new public housing units, which we obviously have to. If we want to get to 12 yeah. million and we have 1 million <laughs> yeah. existing, then we have to like, make up that 11 million somewhere, yep. right? But it would also be buying out like affordable housing units. Do you remember the, the fight that we had with the tenants in Chinatown who were yeah. losing their affordable housing covenant? That would be an opportunity for the federal government or the the state of Los Angeles, sorry, this, or the, the state, state of California, California or, the or the county or city of Los Angeles yeah. to buy that building and turn it into affordable housing for people. We could do yeah, this on actually housing. a pretty you know easy level, either by building new infill housing and making sure that it's owned municipally, so we don't have a developer with a a you know private profit motive that's going to drive those prices up as high as they want like mm -hmm. imagine if we were building transit accessible units in LA that were renting for like $1500 for a two bedroom oh, instead that would be of a studio next to an expo line stop that's going for $3500 a month like just imagine if you could afford to live close to your commute and you didn't have to be making 80 to 90,000 dollars a year to live in an effing studio i mean when we talk about why Los Angeles is losing families and why LAUSD is seeing fewer enrollments year after year, a lot of that is because people can't afford to live here. They're, they're moving out of LAUSD. Yeah, they're absolutely. moving out of the city of LA into other counties, into unincorporated areas, into other states. And a lot of the people that are moving away are the people who aren't in their youngest, most economically productive years. They're people who are raising families, who are trying to actually you know, build a life for themselves and the people that they love and the the fact that Absolutely. we're not able to provide that sort of that sort of stability in a city with 60 billionaires is kind of mind-boggling like we keep giving yeah. tax breaks to developers to build hotels at the same time we're giving tax breaks to developers who are building $3500 units 
and wondering why can't anyone afford to live here? You know, not only would this allow us to build a lot of new units, it would also increase our community ties. Like, you would be more invested in the community you're in if you know that the, the home that you're in, you'll be in for 10 or 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. That you're not going to have to move every five to 10 years because that unit that you're in is just way too expensive now. Going along with that, we would also build permanent supportive housing and something that the city of L.A. has been trying to do, you know, with Measure Triple H and then Measure H at the county level. We've been trying to build 10,000 units of supportive housing and we've had some moves toward it, but we've only built a couple hundred of those units and we're going to fall far short of the, the you know, 10,000 that we need to, that we're supposed to be building when in fact we need 60,000 in the county. So like yeah. those shortfalls could be made up by federal expenditures and this would allow us to not, you know, just address homelessness on a local level, but to really see it as the kind of national fight that it really truly is because the economic conditions that are prevailing in Los Angeles are the same economic conditions that are prevailing across this country. And with this kind of expenditure, we could build 600,000 units across this country and put an end to homelessness in a matter of years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, this is, this is probably the single most hopeful thing. Going back to what I was talking about at the start of the episode here, like the thing that gives me hope is the stuff that I'm seeing talked about on the national stage, uh, specifically surrounding the Bernie campaign, because this type of project, this type of actual, you know, green new deal for public housing and the kinds of investment and, and, and action, action at the federal level is it's, it's rejuvenating. It's, it's inspirational. It's aspirational. It gets people to actually get shit done. And it's got a plausible way of doing it rather than just, you know, throwing up our hands in the air and saying, well, life is shit. Get, get used to it. You know, just got to make a buck any way you can. Well, and as part <sighs> of the, the Homes Guarantee, one of the, the major platform or one of the major planks is looking at decarbonization and resiliency, basically making yes. sure that the public housing stock that we're going to be building is going to have a low carbon footprint, is going mm -hmm. to be able to withstand extreme weather events, and is going to not have a, a net positive uh, draw on energy use by building you know, uh, energy efficient buildings and yeah. keeping them up to date. And part of that dovetails really nicely with what Bernie and AOC did in the, the Green New Deal for public housing. And so that one would only deal with our existing stock, the million plus yeah. units of public housing we currently have. We would invest 119 to $172 billion in green retrofits that would include all needed capital repairs, vastly improve the health and safety and comfort, and eliminate carbon emissions. That would help us create about 240,000 jobs a year. We would have Think to keep building this stuff. We would have to maintain this stuff. These would yeah. be good-paying union jobs where people would be directly impacting and improving their communities. And something oh, that would so be a much, much better use of that money than, like, bombing the crap out of Iran because that doesn't help us in any way. But no. that's a tangent. You know, the, the reinvestment in public housing is something that mm -hmm. we have put off for far too long. Most of the public housing units in this country were built before 1960 and then just forgotten about. If you've been to the public housing units in Los Angeles, they're not great places to live. Like, they don't look well-kept. They don't look well-maintained. The city has not invested in them. The city is, is 
actively not interested in upkeeping them, and the federal government has basically abdicated their responsibility by turning the management of these 100%. units and these buildings over to private interests. We need to rest that back and start putting money in this because, again, we need to look at housing not as something that you use to build equity and as like an asset to transfer wealth between generations, but as something that's an investment in our community, something that you're temporarily occupying and that you maintain as part of your social contract with the rest of us and that we help you in that mission because that's how you build healthy communities. We can't have people living in asbestos-laced buildings and then be complaining about how we don't want to spend money on healthcare. That's just a recipe yeah. for people dying earlier. But a big part of this has to be the public ownership and management. It has to be municipally or county or federally owned. We need to remove the private equity and the private developers and the private management companies from public housing. They're A, antithetical to the whole mission of public housing to begin Correct. with, but B, we know that they're bad. They're always going to opt for the cheaper solve because they have profit margins that they want to make. And even when it comes to nonprofits, those nonprofits still have overhead, still have salaries, still have other things that they're doing where they're taking public money and removing it from public cir circulation. They're hiring outside subcontractors and outside firms that are going to gin up their contracts because they want to make as much money as they can as a for-profit enterprise. We can have this all maintained in a Vienna-style thing where we have all of the maintenance, all of the so um, upkeep, all of the updating work done by people who work for the government. And that's seen yeah. as like a good and useful thing, not yeah. as some like useless, paper-pushing, bureaucratic job. You know... Beyond that, what we also need is a National Tenant Bill of Rights, where we have universal rent control. As the LA Times you know, sort of explored in the study that came out um, that was called The Decade in Housing, it showed that rents across this country have jumped 36%. In that same period of time nationally, real median wages have gone up 4%. That is a 32% difference there. in 10 years. In the city mm -hmm. of Los Angeles alone, rents have jumped 65% in 10 years. At the same time, like median household income has only gone up 36%, and even that is a bit misleading because that median is being pulled way up by the people at the top who are making a heck of a lot more money. If you're making well, minimum wage, you're not making $15 an hour until 2021 guaranteed. Like That yeah. rate isn't going up today. It's not going up for another year, but prices are going to continue to rise. And based on this, like, you know, it's about 6% a year. We just got a rent cap, but I don't know how much that rent cap is going to offset things for the decade no. that it's in place when we see new units coming on the market for like $3,600 for a studio yeah. or $6,500 for a one bedroom. And those are, are not outlier prices. You know, the, the unit that I was in that was rent controlled in Palms, where I was paying sixteen fifty a month is now going for like twenty six, twenty seven hundred dollars a month. Because that's a thousand dollar increase just in the month between when I left and a new person moved in. Yep. The new the where the floor is keeps going up and up and up. And if you're trying to move into LA, you need to be making an insane amount of money just to be able to afford something somewhat comfortable. So and that actually that actually ties in really uh, as a as a better explanation for why the median income has gone up as much as it has is because people are leaving the working class people who who are the you know the lifeblood of our economy are being displaced. So when you have people who make low incomes leaving the city and newer new new residents who are coming in who are bringing uh, you know tax salaries and whatever else with them. 
that displacement is what really shifts things up. It's, you know, people making a ton of money isn't, isn't the, uh, isn't the real driver for the, the median, um, uh, the median pri- the median income level because it's you know it's not an average but those outliers they do have an impact but it's more that the city of Los Angeles is shifting away from the working class uh, communities that used to be the uh, like I said the lifeblood of this economy and those people are being displaced and being replaced replaced with tech workers but at the same time the people that you know are still the foundation of how this city operates are just being squeezed more and more by these ever-increasing uh, rents, and their income in particular is basically flat. Like, the, the, the area median income does go up because we have an influx of rich people and, a, and an outflow of poor people, um, but the people who are staying, who were poor before, are even more poor now because everything else is getting more expensive the whole time. So like that's that's what's really going on at the root of that statistic and it's why this is so critical that we actually take meaningful steps to try to address our 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 housing unaffordability situation because despite what like California Yimby and others will tell you, you can't just build your way out of it by letting the developers go hog wild because we've seen what they do and you can look in downtown and see exactly what that is, building just shitloads of luxury units that nobody can actually afford to live in unless you're one of those rich tech workers who's moving into the city. So, yeah, sorry. Rant. You know, and a lot of us, <laughs> no, I, I mean, you're right, but like on a national level, we're becoming more of a renter nation. Like Los Angeles yes. is still an outlier where we have more renters than owners. But we're seeing across this country as Blackstone and other groups like that buy up more of the housing stock, people just aren't able oh, to yeah. own their own house, even if they want to. And this goes yeah. right along with the other things that we need to enshrine in federal law, things like good cause eviction. Like you just can't get evicted because your landlord wants to make more money. That shouldn't yeah. be allowed. The right to yep. a counsel in court. Like, you are guaranteed yep. an attorney in a criminal, uh, if you are facing criminal prosecution, you should also be entitled to an attorney if you're facing an eviction, if you're going to lose your home. A right to truly affordable housing, and this would mean rent caps, rent freezes, subsidized rent. We have, again, you know, trillions of dollars a year we're spending on war. Imagine if we spent on providing that, on providing homes for people. Yeah. The right to organize and legal enforcement of your rights. Like, in some states, it's almost illegal to have tenants' organizations. And when you start organizing a tenants' rights organization in your building, your landlord may try and evict you to just nip that in the bud. Oh, we yeah, need to make that illegal. We need to allow people to organize within themselves and in their communities to protect each other. And also the right to high-quality and accessible housing. The ADA is one oh of the least God. well-enforced yeah. laws that we yeah. have in this country. We don't make sure that people are able to get into their units or use their units to their full capacity when they're disabled. We need yep. to do away with that and force landlords to actually foot the bill for that. And if they don't want to foot the bill for it, we have a federal government that will buy that unit off of you and make yeah, it ADA accessible. Stop being accessible. a landlord. Yep. <laughs> and then stop we being also, a landlord. Like, when it comes to bank tenants and people that are buying houses, we need to afford them certain protections. Like in the city of LA Absolutely. over the last 10 years, median home prices went up 96%. 96%. So now the median home price in the city of LA is $774,000. If you're on the west side of LA, it's a million and a half dollars. Mm-hmm. So like most people can't afford that. If you're thinking like you want to buy a house and you want to pay off that mortgage and you want to actually own your house – 
that's not something you're ever going to be able to do unless you're earning well into the six figures and probably yeah. seven figures if you actually want to own it and be able to afford all of the utilities and, and upgrades and everything else that mm -hmm. comes with it. We should also be subsidizing people's ability to upgrade their homes, to make them energy efficient, to put solar mm -hmm. panels on them, to weatherize them. Just all of this stuff that would save us individually money and save us as a society so much money rather than waiting for neighborhoods to degrade to the point where the only people who want to buy the housing stock there are flippers. We're going to come in, upgrade everything, and then charge top dollar when they and bring yeah, in new gentrifying businesses too. and kick out everyone who's already living there. Yeah. We also need to pay reparations for the history of redlining and racist yeah. land use and housing policy. For far too long, we have allowed racial discrimination to decide who gets to live where in our cities. You can look at maps of the black population of L.A. and see it just get gutted since the 1970s. And it's still under threat. Like, people who are living in South L.A. are finding their neighborhoods are being targeted by gentrifiers, are being targeted by people who want to turn those Crenshaw neighborhoods Subway. into white gentrified neighborhoods and the people who built those neighborhoods who brought the culture who built the west coast harlem they're being kicked out they're not being left with any connection to the neighborhood that they've been in for generations remember a lot of black folks who who moved into la came from the south at the end of jim crow they came here for defense jobs and good manufacturing jobs and then were left to to wither in south la as those jobs dried up and they were forced into redlined enclaves and now the history of redlining has guaranteed low buying prices for people who have enough capital. Unfortunately, those communities don't have the capital to dig themselves out of it. So instead of offering them a helping hand, we're just showing them the door and saying, well, these people with a lot of money who want to flip your house and turn your neighborhood white, they have more right to live where you've been living for generations than you do because, you know, they have money. Lastly yep. is ending land and real estate speculation. This is the one where we really have to get, like, we really have to change the way in which we address housing and land use and who we allow to own land, how they're allowed to use it, how they're allowed to utilize it. We only have a small amount of time on this planet. We shouldn't be allowed to make decisions that are going to affect things for decades or centuries. We shouldn't be allowed to pollute, to build things that are going to degrade and become a toxic mess. And we do that far too often. When we look at the Jeffrey Palmers of the world, none of the buildings that he's building are built to last. They're built to like get yeah, his right. ROI as soon as possible and then in 30, 40 years be knocked down and replaced with another gigantic like faux Tuscan piece of crap. We have to stop allowing the private market to set the standards and to set the tempo. If you if you have the chance, read Capital City by Samuel Stein that yes. explains exactly how private development is driving our urban development in this century and how that is really bad for all of us. Even if you're somebody who has a decent living, has a decent amount of money, you're still existing at the whims of the 1% who are really deciding what gets built, where it gets built, and who gets to live there. And until we undo that fundamental inequality in our markets, we're not really going to like move the needle at all. And this would include things like a land value uplift tax. So that would basically be a point of sale tax such that when you actually sell the property, you are paying taxes on the actual capital improvements. So you would get taxed on the assessed value at point of sale and the assessed value of the unimproved property at the point of purchase. So if you bought a property for $100,000 and then sold it for $250,000, you would get taxed on that $150,000 difference. That would be a huge infill and would allow us to kind of 
pull back some of the property taxes that we're not getting through all of this flipping and the uplift and the the uplifting of neighborhoods that's being used to gut them. A flipping tax basically as if you buy a house just to flip it, you should have to pay a bigger tax on that. You should be disincentivized Absolutely. against doing that. We should see yeah. it as you know, when we're upgrading houses, we should see that as a community investment, not just yeah. somebody not just somebody building value. Yeah, no, if you own if you own a home for less than like three years, you yeah. should not be able to walk away with money that you're making from that um, by doing flipping because very it's it's extraordinarily rare that people are gonna move into a home and then leave after just a year or two and or not even less in most cases with flipping, like you could probably set this at like two years or even maybe one year and still do a huge number on what's happening with flipping. Um, and just say like, look, if your value, if you increase the value, you lose like 95% of that value that you've uh, seen increase uh, should go as a tax or, or yeah. whatever the process is, because you should basically, we need to completely remove the incentive to, uh, for these people who come into these neighborhoods and are, are, are extraordinarily predatory in the way that they're doing this because they're, basically splashing paint on things, trying to cover up a lot of issues of uh, long-term neglect in, in, in some of these situations where they're buying a home that's extremely undervalued because, oh, I don't know, maybe there was a lot of water damage or there was uh, dry rot or there were termites or whatever, or the pipes are, are all messed up and the, the wiring is, is all flaky. But then they just splash some paint on it, put some new fixtures in, uh, change the, the flooring and uh, put up one of those uh, slatted fences and suddenly now they can sell it for you know twice the value that they bought it for and they've only put in a minimal amount of investment with no intention of actually making it be a, a meaningful improvement that's going to improve the long-term quality of the of the home for any of the residents. Um, and it's just making it more unaffordable for everyone who lives in that neighborhood to continue to live there. They shouldn't profit. Well, this would also have to come hand in glove with a bl blight and vacancy tax. Like, you can't just oh, own distressed 100%. properties and yes. not do anything with them. Correct. This would cut against bank ownership, against Blackstone's ownership, because they have a yeah. lot of blighted properties Fuck out Blackstone. there <laughs> that they just allow to continue to degrade until they're able to sell them for, you know, a minor profit to somebody who's going to flip it and then increase land values for everyone around there. And we would, of course, have to increase the amount of data and tracking that we're doing right now. 100%. Our enforcement of racial discrimination laws of racial discrimination laws in the housing market is self-reporting. Like, you have yeah. to go in and be discriminated against and then complain to the local authorities and have them want to do something about it. If we had a yeah. national effort to track this data, we would see those trends playing out in real time and be able yeah. to go after the bad actors. On top of this, and these are the last two things that we are recommending in the, the Homes Guarantee, is establish a People's Housing Commission so that the people who are actively being impacted by our housing policies are the ones informing the policies going forward. We don't have that now. The people who get a seat at the table are the people with the money. They don't go to public housing tenants and ask them what they think. They go to the money developers and ask them what they want to do yeah. to make a buck. And we have to combine this with a Green New Deal. You know, the uh, uh, Green New Deal for public housing is a great start, but we need to work on the energy efficiency and the sustainability and the resiliency of every home and multi-unit dwelling in the nation. If you're looking Absolutely. at what's happening in Australia, if you remember oh the God. incredibly harsh winters we've had for the last couple of years, it's only going to get worse. If we're not investing the money now to make sure that our communities can not only survive, but thrive through this period where we cut greenhouse emissions and we wait 
for global temperatures to come back to where they're safe, we're going to lose a lot of people and we're going to create another displacement crisis. We have to start addressing that now. So this has been like my rather long, long rundown of the Homes Guarantee <laughs> and why I honestly think this is such a radical policy. Um, it's a, we're going to go into uh, Chris's story now, but I really I want you to imagine what your life would be like if you didn't have to worry about where you live. Imagine oh, so if you knew you made enough money to pay your rent. If you knew that your building was free from asbestos and was weatherized and was running on sustainable energy. What would your life be like and how much more could you do to enjoy your life without those worries? And that's the world that we're going to build with the Homes Guarantee. So, Chris, what's the story that that you want to talk (laughs) about for 2019 and 2020? Because there's Uh, just so much out there. We covered so much this year. So I'm really curious to hear what you picked. Well, so mine actually ties right in with the fact that it is 2020 and that is the year that... Our boy, Mayor Eric Garcetti, announced in his Vision Zero proposal in 2015 that we would have the have like cut by 50 percent the number of uh, people dying on the streets of Los Angeles. So, spoiler, uh, we're not there uh, at all. Uh, it's actually getting worse. But let's go into a little bit of detail on this. So we actually discussed this issue at the top of the episode uh, that we recorded back on the 25th of April this year. Um, But it absolutely needs to be mentioned again. So first, what is Vision Zero? So Vision Zero is a road safety project that aims to change how our transportation system works to eliminate all traffic fatalities and serious injuries. Uh, So basically making it, you know, safe for people to get around the places where they live. It's centered around this the, the ethical principle that, quote, it can never be ethically acceptable that people are killed or seriously injured when moving within the road transport system, end quote. So Vision Zero was actually introduced here in LA by 2015. And again, that stated goal when Mayor Eric Garcetti put it into place and announced it, was a 50% reduction in traffic-related deaths by 2020. And this, this isn't just an L.A. city thing. This is something that we're doing across the entire state of California. Yes. And we actually uh, connect transit dollars from the state level being sent to municipalities based on how well they hit these goals and how well their development is in line with Vision Zero development. Yeah, and so Vision Zero actually is very, very vague. It's basically like saying, hey, we want to get to zero. And how you actually decide you're going to do that is left up to the municipalities and the, and the counties and the states uh, and the countries to figure out how they want to do that. Um, but in a word, uh, I mean, basically, L.A. has just fucked this up. We are doing really badly. So rather than seeing pedestrian drops anywhere close to 50 percent in terms of the number of fatalities associated with traffic incidents, they've gone up by 45% since Eric Garcetti announced the implementation of or the beginning of Vision Zero in Los Angeles. So there were 88 yep. people who were pedestrians who died on the streets of Los Angeles due to traffic fatalities in 2015 when that program was announced. We had 128 pedestrian deaths 
in 2019. 2017 was even worse when we had 134 pedestrians killed that year. Cyclist deaths are also up 19% over the last five years, instead of being down by 50%, because there were 16 deaths in 2015, 19 deaths in 2019, and we had 22 in 2016 and 21 in 2018. Like It is pretty much constant that you're going to have a score of people that die because a driver in a multi-ton vehicle slammed into a cyclist on a 20 pound bicycle and they got just smeared across the pavement because uh, the city doesn't give a shit. The numbers get even bleaker if you look at Southern California as a whole oh, yeah. or even just L.A. County. You know, yeah. there, there are people killed pretty much every week in L.A. County for riding a bike and multiple yep. people killed in the city of L.A. and the county of L.A. All, every week just trying to walk across the street. Yeah. So and what's even more fucked up than these extremely bleak figures and the damning story that they tell you about our completely ineffective mayor and his promises is that his police chief, Michael Moore, uh, is basically giving the green light for drivers to kill pedestrians with impunity. So at a press conference on Monday this last week, LAPD was discussing the statistics on traffic collisions in an attempt to discourage people from uh, you know, engaging in reckless and dangerous driving on New Year's Eve because people get drunk and they do stupid shit behind the wheel. It happens all the time. I understand why they were doing this. Um, but yeah, so the, these numbers are, are, are very bleak. And uh, despite the fact that there was a an decrease overall in the number of collisions that have happened in the city of LA, there was actually a 32% increase in fatalities over the past five years, jumping all the way up to 236 fatalities in traffic-related incidents this past year. And that was maybe, actually before... Maybe Maybe that's connected to the fact that everyone's driving faster because we have this stupid policy (laughs) where we set speed limits based on people driving the fastest. Like that, that's how you unlock Not based on how safe it is. Transportation dollars is you have to set it to the 80th percentile of people driving fastest. So if you notice, like all of the speed limits went up across the city, it's because we have this incredibly dumb policy that we could literally fix tomorrow that incentivizes drivers to drive more quickly and more recklessly and has cities hamstrung to do anything about it. Yeah, you can't give people speeding tickets unless you've actually like done a study to prove that that speed limit is in compliance with that 80% statistic. Like it is utter bullshit that we have allowed drivers to basically just control everything that's going on here and there's no ramifications or no there's no impact being taken against drivers for putting people's lives at risk. So he, this the the statistic that I said before, 236 deaths. That was actually before uh, the tragic death of Courtney Everts McKitten, sorry, uh, who was actually struck and killed in front of her home the same day that LAPD held this presser, which was right before the year started. So the critical point here is that Courtney's death was an accident, according to reporting. And nearly every traffic death in the city of LA is an accident, according to the LAPD. As long as you don't flee the scene, you've been, you're basically allowed to murder folks with your car with impunity. So here's a direct quote from Chief Moore. Quote, the key for me for hit and runs is this. It's an accident. Don't make it a crime. End quote. What the fuck, Chief Moore? Well, and the thing that amazes me is is I had a friend a couple of years ago. It was about five years ago at this point. He was coming down a hill on a bicycle. 
a woman in a Mercedes SUV ran a red light. He ended up smacking into the back of her car. His helmet saved his life. He still, you know, suffered a traumatic brain injury. He's pretty much in rehab for his entire life. He can't ride a bicycle with, like, normal drop bars because it just broke his forearms in such heinous ways that, like, his wrists will never fully recover. They were able to track the lady down. They weren't able to charge her with drunk driving, even though she was drunk, and they know she was drinking based on her credit card receipts. They were able to charge her with leaving the scene of an accident and not rendering aid to somebody who was hurt. She ended up getting... Uh, I think 90 days in jail and a two-year suspension on her license. That's it. Like, for nearly killing someone and leaving, that's all you're going to face. My friend Don Ward, I had him on the podcast when we first started doing this, like way back almost two years ago. Mm -hmm. He got hit by one of the top lobbyists in City Hall who left the scene of the accident and whose only thing, whose only... uh, Punishment for leaving the scene of the accident was a suspension of his license and a fine and some community service. And and it was even more maddening because when you listen to Don's story, Don had to track down the driver who nearly killed him himself. He had the plate number. Like, he got hit by a car and he memorized the plate number as it was taking off. LAPD was like, there's nothing we can do about it. His buddy at CHP was like, oh, you got the plate number? Let's see where it's at. And they were able to track down the Jaguar dealership where it was being repaired and show up there and get photos of the car and then take that to the district attorney's office to get this guy charged. But because of the amount of power and the way that the laws are written, nothing happened to this guy who tried to murder my friend Don and then left. It was an absolutely maddening situation that happens over and over and over again. And that's why we shouldn't call these things accidents. It's not an accident. It's a collision. It wasn't something you just mistakenly did. You committed an act, and you need to be held to account for it. You know, when we talk about driving as a privilege, not a right, like when people say that in the the very, like, bad faith way that, oh, we shouldn't give undocumented people licenses. No, 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 no. Like, every SUV (laughs) driver out there should have to, like, prove that they really need to be driving that SUV. Because not only are the speeds responsible for more people dying on the road, it's the size of the cars that we're driving. If you get hit at 40 miles an hour, your chances of surviving that accident are, like, less than 10%. If you get hit at 25 miles an hour, your chances of surviving that accident is 60 to 80%. If yeah, we unless just it's like one down, of those Chevy Suburbans because those hoods are so high that they yeah. crush your rib cage instead of hitting you in the knees. Like, but, cars yeah, are it, but so it's also, much safer than SUVs. Just the amount of kinetic energy just going oh, into yeah, it. Yeah, if you lower speed limits, you save lives. And like, yes, I'm sorry, absolutely. folks, like most of you aren't going to go put out a fire or do emergency heart surgery. You really, really, really don't need to be doing 60 miles an hour down San Vicente. You just yeah. absolutely 100% don't. So, by the way, those hit and runs uh, that are being talked about here, those account for nearly half of the crashes that get reported to LAPD. So there were more than 25,000 300 hit and runs in 2019, which is actually 3,000 fewer than in 2018. But the number of pedestrians that are killed in hit and run actually has been climbing significantly. 69% increase over the past five years, four of which have fallen under vision zero. So in case this wasn't all clear enough, uh, here's a longer quote from LAPD chief Michael Moore. Quote, when we look at those pedestrian fatalities, just over half of them in the period of time, the pedestrians themselves are outside of a crosswalk or on the roadway, and so to speak, are at fault. We know that the other half of the time the motorist is, though, through distracted driving or texting or impaired driving. Um, 
thank th- thank you thank you Michael Moore for telling us that these pedestrians deserve to die because roads are the privileged domain of rolling steel cages and fuck you for thinking differently that human life would maybe deserve to be prioritized over speedy commutes. Well, it's like back under Chief Beck when LAPD was like, we're going to do something about pedestrian fatalities. We're going to ticket jaywalkers. We're not going to ticket the trucks. We're not going to ticket the vans. We're not going to ticket the people who are driving recklessly in downtown. And they're going to hand out high-vis jackets. (laughs) Oh, fuck. Yeah, and the the whole thing about the high-visibility jackets that they were going to be handing out as, like, punishment, too, was insane. Um, But, yeah, so here's, here's the thing, though. Like... It's L.A. has fucked this up seriously, but uh, it's this isn't something that's an immutable problem. We can change how this is done. Vision Zero can and does work. So just for a little bit of context, uh, you know, Vision Zero started in what was like 1997 in Sweden. Um, in 2002, Norway became one of the first uh, countries to sign on to the program. Uh, and in Back in 20, so then this, so they, they started doing it in 2002, and then over the last, you know, 15, 17 years, they've been uh, getting all of this stuff rolling into place. And so Oslo, uh, you know, the capital of Norway, um, they, in 2019, you know, admittedly, they're a fraction of the size of LA. It's like 650,000 versus our 4 million plus. Uh, yeah. They managed to have only a single traffic fatality in the entire city of Oslo over the course of 2019. One single traffic fatality. Further, for the first time ever, no children under the age of 16 died in a traffic uh, accident at all in the entirety of Norway in the whole of 2019. Like, that's incredible. Um, And if you want to scale it for population, Norway back in 2017, actually they reported 20 deaths per 1 million inhabitants, uh, which if you scale that to the city of Los Angeles, so that was 20 traffic deaths per 1 million inhabitants, that would mean around 80 deaths here in the city of LA, which is a third of what it is that is happening out on our streets. So when we've tried to implement place the like pieces of this Vision Zero plan, and part of the reason why this like doesn't work as well in LA is because there's massive pushback that comes from all of these these NIMBY style groups that are just being like, no, 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 you do not get to impact what my commute is. Fuck you. I want to be able to drive fast. So like there was uh, Councilman Bonin uh, was threatened with a potential recall over a road diet that got put in place on Venice Boulevard. And then we saw the same kind of, like because of that threat of a recall, which ended up fizzling and going nowhere, um, because it turns out the person that was at the head of it was uh, seizing on popular resentment against uh, Bond and perceived popular resentment, which actually didn't meaningfully exist, uh, and seems to have been like grifting off of it because as soon as they got a job uh, doing sales someplace, the whole thing just fizzled and disappeared. Eh, no one really knows what happened there. But when other road diets were proposed elsewhere along uh, throughout the city, like up in Silver Lake and Echo Park, the yep. council members who are responsible for those things looked at those studies that show, oh my God, this works. It doesn't meaningfully impact commutes. It adds a couple of seconds, but it makes things so much safer for pedestrians and for cyclists. It's a really like a win-win situation for everyone. And it improves like the flow of traffic. So it's less... 
uh, you know, it, it, it tends to go more smoothly if, if a little bit slower um, and there's less like gridlock gridlock, but yeah, they just ignored all these studies um, because they're afraid of actually being challenged at the ballot box. So anyway, well, and, and I think, you know, I think one of the things that we're hoping we'll see in candidates like Nithia and Lorraine yeah. Lundquist is an actual progressive platform in city hall that council members like David Ryu who have given in to the NIMBYs and like the yep. folks who just absolutely have to be doing 50 miles yep. an hour because 35 Ferrell, miles an hour. like they're I guess they're David Lee Roth fans when it comes down to it but <laughs> we can finally defeat them at the ballot box because ultimately there are more people in this city I believe that want to safely traverse and see their neighbors and their neighbors' children and their children safely traverse our streets that are willing to sacrifice lives on our street. But we just don't talk about this enough. It's, it's for something that impacts so many aspects of our daily life. We see a couple of press conferences a year and a couple of like press releases from the mayor being like, oh, Vision Zero, blah, blah, blah. But they're not actually like dealing with these issues on the level that we need to, and they're not asking the hard questions. We can finally make that happen, and this next half decade is going to decide what happens to L.A. And 100%. I'm not sure. There was a, a Ray Bradbury story I read um, back in the day. No, no, I'm sorry. It was a Fahrenheit 451 when the young woman gets killed, and yeah. the protagonist goes out trying to find the man who ran her over in a driverless vehicle that was doing 100 miles an hour on the street. And if that's the L.A. you want to live in, then don't vote for Nithia or Lorraine. But if you yep. want to live in a city where cars come secondary and your life comes first, vote for those candidates. Absolutely. Yeah, so that basically uh, wraps up how I'm feeling about Vision Zero right now is like it's been an utter failure under the current leadership. Um, we've got a couple of bright spots where people have actually stood up and done the right thing. Thank you, Bonin, for you know for standing behind that road diet and actually getting some of these things to be changed. Um, and fuck you, David Rue and Mitch O'Farrell and everybody else, uh, you know, Krikorian and and everyone who's got like the stuff on the west side where they 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 won't even talk about putting in a road diet or slowing things down at all, or even maybe consider putting in protected bike lanes uh, for, for, for use in areas that, that absolutely critically need them. Um, yep. We're coming for you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's, you know, 2020 is just the start. It's only the odd districts, but the even districts, or sorry, the even districts, but the odd districts are going to be coming up in 2022. And um, we're still going to be angry about this. And we're still going to be here doing this work. And uh, we're going to be bringing more people in. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a long year um, between now and November. Between now and March is going to be a sprint. So, you know, tune into Ground Game's uh, social media channels if you want to get involved canvassing, if you want to uh, figure out how to help these candidates the most you can, if you want to, like, get involved with us building a better L.A. Uh, to that end, uh, the first thing that I want to uh, clue you all into that's going to be happening uh, on Saturday, January 4th at Pershing Square is an anti uh, Iran war protest, basically protesting what the administration just did and trying to stop this ridiculously foolhardy conflict before it goes anywhere. So between one and three tomorrow, Pershing Square answer, which is to act now to stop war and end racism, uh, which is a, a coalition that did a lot of anti-Iraq war organizing, is going to be hosting a protest. Show up, make your voice heard, call your congressmen, call your senators, let them know that you do not want to see 
this ridiculousness spiral into a regional threatening conflict because we have to act now and we have to do something before this gets any worse. Yep, we're at the brink. We got to step back. All right. So uh, this coming week, we've also got the Black Lives Matter weekly vigil happening, as always, on Wednesday, downtown 211 West Temple. Uh, vigil starts at four, runs until around six. Uh, Los Angeles Tenants Union, there is going to be a general meeting happening on the 6th. Um, the, the annual meeting is going to be happening sometime in the coming weeks as well. I forget exactly what the date is on that one. I don't have it in front of me. I apologize. Uh, they've also got their sustainability happening on Tuesday the 7th. Um, then the Northeast local meeting happens on Wednesday as usual. Thursday, we've got the North Hollywood local, we've got the South LA local, and we've got the East Side local happening same date and time as you would expect for those. Uh, ground game, of course, uh, Thursday the 9th, we will be meeting as we do every Thursday uh, from 7.30 till around 9 o'clock, 5617 uh, Hollywood Boulevard, just a couple of blocks from the Western Hollywood Redline Station. Uh, come join us. It's a lot of fun. Uh, meet some folks and talk about how to save the city of L.A. and stop all this madness from consuming us. So, as always, if y'all have any events that you want us to be taking part in, publicizing, or just to be made aware of, please send us a message. You can reach us through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or over by email at podcast at groundgamela.org. Of course, you can also follow us on Twitter at Ground Game LA, at Bushido Squirrel, at Christopher Roth, over on Instagram at Ground Game LA, and you can like and follow the Ground Game LA Facebook page for all of our live streamed content from actions around the city as well as links from Knock. This podcast and every Ground Game podcast is a production of Knock LA. Knock LA is a cooperative nonprofit multimedia collaboration, and we invite you to be a part of it. Please support our work over on Patreon. We pay local writers to report on issues happening in their neighborhood and around LA, so your support goes directly to funding the work of shining a light into the spaces that establishment figures want to keep shrouded from view. We also invite you to contribute your own work over on Knock.LA. We are all in this together, and your voice matters. If you'd like to read the sources that we are citing or quoting here for yourself, please check out the list of articles cited in the episode description over on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, or wherever it is that you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. Well, so uh, today I want to leave us on a quote from Smedley Butler, who is a U.S. Marine Corps general. Quote, war is a racket. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the masses. Keep that in mind as we head forward. Things are going to yep. get dark. Yeah, it is. But rise up, fight. You have the power at the end of the day. Hell Thanks. yeah. Thank you all very much.
solidarity net. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. 